Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Coming up, we'll hear about a show that depicts a white settler getting skinned alive by Native Americans who are played by white actors in red paint. Putting on iron ore. It's like, yeah, so we look like Indians and stuff. Even though Wyoming has the most lenient local food regulations, grass-fed cattle producers are struggling to get their meat out to urban markets, even though ranchers say the state has the best quality beef around. Yeah, I mean, we could be the, the Bordeaux of uh, beef. A local school district has opened up a clinic to make sure kids had year-round support. They did it in hopes of curbing the trend. We'll also learn about a debate over a proposed coal mine and efforts to solve the problem of hunger for kids over the summer. Those stories and more coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. A new coal mine may open in Wyoming for the first time in 50 years. State regulators issued a permit for the Brook Mine back in December, paving the way for construction to begin. But now that permit has become the center of a controversy. Landowners, environmental groups, and even a coal company are taking issue with it. Cooper McKim reports. And I know you discussed some of this with the council. It's the seventh and final day of a lengthy hearing to decide whether the Brookmine permit is legitimate. Five groups sit in front of an independent review board, the Environmental Quality Council, or the EQC. Three of them testify against granting a permit, while the others defend it. The publicly available data and... The council has until August to make their decision. Thank you all for your patience. This hearing is reset. In 2011, Kentucky-based coal company Ramico bought land north of Sheridan for this new mine. Back then, they hoped to mine the coal for power generation. Now, with coal-fired power plants shutting down across the country, the company hopes to be at the forefront of new technologies that turn coal into other products. The technology is still in the research phase, but it's an ambitious plan that's excited many in the state. When the Department of Environmental Quality, or DEQ, issued the permit for public notice last year, though, the mine quickly got bogged down in legal and regulatory controversy. Here's why. There was no public hearing before the permit was issued. Landowners were particularly upset, with about 100 people living within a half mile of the permit boundary. Sheridan homeowner Brooke Collins was stunned. Where is the permit? Where are the people that promised to come talk to us? What's going on with this? Her family has lived in the area for generations. Many made their living from coal. In fact, when she first heard about the mine, she was thrilled. But Collins did have questions. She didn't know how the coal would be used or how a mine might affect her home. Me in particular, I'm concerned about my house crumbling, so because of the um, blast, because I'll be within a quarter of a mile of where they're blasting. She says other homeowners are worried about their water source being drawn down or polluted, or hearing massive dozers mining at two in the morning. Ding, 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 ding. She says most of these questions could have been answered if Brookmine had held an informal hearing before a permit was issued. But without one, she felt powerless. When they don't, really, there's, there's no other avenue. It's just like, yeah, you can just do whatever you want, and, and nobody can stop them from doing that. In addition to landowners, a coal company had concerns as well. Bighorn Coal has surface rights that overlap where Brook has mineral rights. Bighorn is also concerned about damages done to their land, as well as the cost of reclamation. And the Powder River Basin Resource Council voiced environmental concerns. 
water well impacts, groundwater impacts, impacts to the valuable agricultural lands, impacts to the recreation in that area, the hunting, the fishing. That's Joe Morrison with the Resource Council. She says all this is particularly important given the mine isn't off somewhere remote. It borders a sizable community along with the scenic Tongue River. So these three groups, the coal company, the environmental group, and the landowners, all asked for informal hearings. The DEQ felt informal hearings couldn't resolve these issues and instead called a contested case hearing in front of an independent review board. Seven miles north of Sheridan, Jeff Barron drives over rocky hills overlooking open green fields. But right through here is where the, the mine will, will start and begin as it's permitted today. Barron is the project manager for the Brook Mines permit. He says concerns over the permit are overblown. Brook is already in compliance with the law. And then the state is obligated to, to issue the permit. And in essence, after they review it, they've blessed it and said, yes, it does meet the requirements. The mine may have met all of its legal requirements, but still there are many who feel the company should have gone further and held a public meeting, presented the mining process, showed they met all national standards. Uh, and therefore, we hope that you can come across the fence and support it. That's the mayor of Sheridan, Roger Miller. But on the other side, I've talked with quite a few people that uh, would, would really appreciate the economic impact that, it, that the mines would have, uh, the jobs that they would create. They could provide new skilled positions and stimulate the local economy, not to mention new tax revenue to the county. In early August, the EQC will make a recommendation to the DEQ on whether to approve, deny, or amend Brookmine's permit application. If the permit's granted, there will still be a three- to five-year time frame to get the mine up and running. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Cooper McKim. The wind energy industry is growing worldwide, and so is the global competition between turbine makers. That battle is now playing out in Wyoming, a state with some of the best wind potential in the nation. In the next few years, two massive wind power projects are slated to come online. To get an edge, a Chinese company is trying to win over the state's scant pool of workers through free training to become a wind turbine technician. Inside Energy's Madeline Beck reports. I'm at the community center in Rollins, Wyoming. It's a musty older building with faded carpets and linoleum floors. 20 minutes before the meeting, and there's already a line of burly older men waiting to fill out a name tag and sign in. About 100 people are here to learn about the free training. It's the latest effort from Chinese company Goldwind to, quote, win the hearts of workers. This could be difficult in a state with the nation's smallest population and where fossil fuels are still king. David Halligan is the CEO of Goldwyn's American office. Speaking to the room full of workers, he said they need hundreds of people to build and maintain turbines, people with experience. Where they've had to work in situations where there's safety or mechanical or electrical skills required. He's talking about industries like coal mining or oil drilling, his company held three meetings across the state this month to try to stir up interest in the free two-week training planned for fall of 2017. There were lots of ex-fossil fuel workers at these meetings who lost their jobs during the recent busts. Others just wanted more work security, like mechanic William Cardenas. It seems like it'd be a perfect opportunity with the oil and gas field that goes up and down and there's nothing stable, but it seems like this would be a, a good opportunity and, and a good experience. Wyoming is the country's largest coal producer, but presenters discussed how coal's future is looking dim. 
largely thanks to cheap natural gas and energy efficiencies. Rob Godby says renewables are also getting more competitive. He's director of the Center for Energy Economics and Public Policy at the University of Wyoming. He sees wind growing fast. The easiest thing to compare this to is computers. If you think about PCs 10 years ago and what they could do, for the same price now, you can get so much more. Godby told the crowd that wind prices had come down so far, they beat out gas or coal. This is the cheapest form of generation to build. The thing is, workers who choose to participate in this free training would still have to be retrained when they're hired. But as trainer Brian Boatwright explained, this two-week course would give them an edge. Again, what is it? Foot in the door. This could also be Goldwyn's foot in the door to Wyoming. The company used to be the number one turbine manufacturer in the world, but last year lost out to Vestas of Denmark and U.S.-based General Electric. Up until recently, Goldwyn's been mostly focused on Asia. But GE and Vestas already have established positions in the U.S. and in Wyoming. GE has supplied hundreds of turbines to wind farms already operating here. Vestas has turbines here, too. And both are in the running to supply more turbines to Wyoming's 1,000-turbine chokecherry project, the largest planned wind farm in the nation. Goldwind isn't. Well, I mean, they're, they're an underdog right now, right? That's Lawrence Willey. He's a mechanical engineering professor at the University of Wyoming. He worked 15 years in wind. He says Goldwind's turbine types are proven and reliable, which may help them in the long term. For now, he sees Goldwind's free training as a good move. This is a smart way to spend money. It helps people, it introduces them to the technology and, and to Goldwind as a company, and, and uh, it'll help the region. Goldwind now has an agreement to supply over 700 turbines for the second big wind farm going up in Wyoming, and they plan on expanding this free training program to Texas as well. As Willie puts it, for Goldwyn, this training is part of a much bigger play. And for now, it seems to be working. Take 60-year-old Michael Abeda. He likes the idea of long-term employment as a wind tech. You give me the training, I'll work for you. He's currently unemployed, but starts work soon constructing the Chokecherry Wind Farm. I can always come back and these will already be built and they'll be knitting techs. Wind techs here to keep all those Goldwyn turbines turning. For Inside Energy, I'm Madeline Beck. Next on the show, we'll learn how the Interior plans to make oil and gas drilling easier and why it's so hard to market Wyoming beef outside the state. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Newly minted Interior Department Secretary Ryan Zinke just took a massive step towards streamlining the permitting process for oil and gas drilling on federal lands. Correspondent Matt Laszlo reports from Washington that while Wyoming lawmakers love the move, Democrats fear it's a dangerous first step down a slippery slope. It's a new day for the nation's oil and gas industry under President Trump, and they're loving most every minute of it. Under former President Obama, the Interior Department appeared to slow walk permits, leading to a backlog of some 2,800 permits, the department claimed earlier this year. Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney says while those numbers are troubling, the Trump administration understands the struggle of corporations that want to drill on federal lands in Wyoming and other states. We've had a real problem with this backlog of applications for permit to drill, and so I think, you know, I was really impressed. We had the Assistant Secretary in front of the Natural Resources Committee about 10 days ago 
uh, the acting assistant secretary, and she was really, you know, she'd been out to Casper. She understood the problems we were facing in the Casper office, um, understood how important it is that we get this moving. Sinkey's recent announcement states that the Interior Department must answer requests to drill on federal lands within 30 days of receiving the request. That's a huge win for the industry. Cheney says the Obama administration was working quietly behind the scenes to kill the fossil fuel industry. It's a combination of things. I think that a lot of it is because, you know, the sort of instructions from the previous administration was delay, delay, delay. And, you know, you had some instances where it was taken nine years from the time of, you know, the application being filed to actually being able to start the project. The Casper office alone has more than 500 backlog permit requests which is partly why Cheney is praising the order. And you see that difference economically when, you know, what happens is people say, well, we're not going to be in Wyoming then if we got to deal with this federal permitting process, you know, we're going to head north and or south. And I think that's, it really hurts us economically. Democrats from out west and elsewhere are bristling by the move. New Mexico Democrat Tom Udall says it's misguided. I, I don't think it's a good idea. I think they ought to follow the regular process. Udall says it's an ominous sign from the Trump administration. They seem determined to declare a war on public land, so not a good thing, I don't think. And Virginia Democrat Don Beyer says the move to open up more federal lands to private drilling is disturbing, though understandable. I think it's characteristic. I mean, the Koch brothers are an immensely important part of the Republican majorities that we have in the House and the Senate. Uh, And, you know, Trump, part of his electoral message was climate change was a hoax by the Chinese, and we should double down on fossil fuel. I think it's terrible energy policy. Wyoming's junior Senator John Barrasso disagrees and says local voters are behind him. Uh, you know, I support what the Secretary of Interior is doing. I was home traveling the state of Wyoming uh, over the weekend and over the last week. People are very enthusiastic and have been kind of a spring in their step in terms of people being hired, energy development, and uh, use of resources that we in Wyoming know are a very important part of our of our economy. Barrasso says the move to expedite permit requests on federal lands also signals a new day for the energy industry. President Trump has been very clear. He's saying what the people of Wyoming have been saying for a long time. You know, we need energy security, and I use energy security as a key, but then we've talked about energy independence, and Donald President Trump is now saying, but we need energy dominance, and I believe that. Energy is uh, called the master resource for a reason. Conservationists and Democrats alike worry the Trump administration is going down a dangerous path that will turn public lands into drilling havens. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. Two years ago, Wyoming passed the Food Freedom Act, giving the state the most lenient local food regulations in the country. It allows Wyoming farmers to sell things other states can't, raw milk, eggs, and poultry, direct to consumers. But many Wyoming food producers say there's still one roadblock, that's beef. As Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports, the issue is that federal regulations make it hard to market Wyoming-branded beef outside the state where all the customers are. True to their name, the Black Market Farm near Centennial in southern Wyoming doesn't do things by the book. For instance, this cattle drive. Unlike most ranches, it's not twice a year up to the high country and back. It's every couple days. Today, cowboys are moving the animals from one small pasture to another. We're on the high plateau, the, the high range here. These grasses are cool weather grasses. 
They're higher in omega-3s. That's rancher Matt Siegel. He says the ranch doesn't cut and sell these grasses as hay, like most. They let their cattle graze all of it, and that improves the beef's flavor. We have an interesting beef hauteur, as I say. It, it tastes like the land it comes from. And it's not just black market farm. Many Wyoming ranchers are experimenting with grass-fed. But as tasty as Wyoming's beef is, Siegel says it isn't so easy to get onto people's plates. It's been hard to market. Wyoming is a small state. We've had to lean out of the state a lot. Siegel says there just isn't a big enough population in Wyoming willing to pay a premium for natural beef. But to sell across state lines, ranchers have to pay to ship their cattle hours away to a USDA-inspected plant in a neighboring state rather than closer by to one of the 15 state-inspected plants. Many opt to ship their cattle to feedlots instead. But after that, the meat can no longer be marketed as Wyoming-grown. That's why, for years, ranchers have been lamenting the lack of a USDA plant in Wyoming. Enter Wyoming legacy meat owner Frank Schmidt. We should be known as a state that produces the finest cattle anywhere. Up in Cody, Schmidt just opened the first USDA full-service processing plant in Wyoming in 40 years. I mean, if you think about it, our grass is as good as it gets. The air they breathe, the water they drink, the humane treatment... And the, and the way they're handled allows these animals the best possible way to grow. Schmidt says it was really expensive to become USDA certified, but he decided to go for it because, as a rancher, he was frustrated with the traditional approach to processing beef. Most ranchers ship their cattle to feedlots where they're bought and sold up to six times before their meat is finally swept into the nation's bulk beef supply. I have a strong opinion about this. I think the ranchers are doing a lot of the work to feed America, and they don't get recognized. Schmidt says he'll save northern Wyoming ranchers money on transportation and pay them a higher price for antibiotic and hormone-free beef. Just across town at the state's only other USDA meat plant is a beef jerky factory, Wyoming Authentic Products. Operations manager Josh Euler is adding natural celery juice instead of nitrates to some ground beef. He says the company is having some success spreading the word about Wyoming's higher quality beef. Right there on their label, they proclaim it. Beef exclusively from Wyoming ranches, beef raised, never ever any added hormones or antibiotics. He says in exchange for that extra work ranchers take on. Each bag of jerky, we tell them what ranch it came from. It's on the bag, you know, it'll say Knuckles Ranch or Wagon Hound Ranch. Euler says the company's goal is to put Wyoming's uniquely flavored beef on the map. Right now we are in 7-Eleven all over the country. We're in Cracker Barrel all over the country. It'll just be nice for us to get a few more big accounts, big retailers, so we can get the volume to justify growth. Rancher and Crook County Representative Tyler Lindholm would love to see Wyoming branding like that grow. He's the sponsor of the Food Freedom Act that lifted rules blocking the sale of many local foods. You can look across your landscape in Wyoming and see small farms and ranches disappearing. And I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that you can't diversify your dollar. You're trapped in, when you're doing cattle, you're trapped in pretty much one way to do it, and that's it. Lindholm says the state has now done all it can do to make it easier for local food producers to market their products. He says now it's time to change the law at the national level. 
this is the far right and the far left finally agreeing on something. <laughs> it's it's really pretty wild. Our biggest problem is the moderates. Lindholm would like to see a proposed law called the Prime Act pass that would allow states to make their own meat processing rules. It could potentially mean Wyoming ranchers could sell beef slaughtered and processed by local custom butchers, although they still couldn't sell it across state lines. But Wyoming Department of Agriculture's Linda Stratton says those cattle aren't inspected. Well, I've seen some pretty sick animals and stuff, and what you see inside you don't want to eat. So <laughs> I would be hesitant about it. You know, and the tuberculosis and stuff, some aren't vaccinating for that, or we're getting animals from other countries and stuff, you know. But black market farms' Matt Siegel says the healthiest way to slaughter an animal is to have his butcher do it right on his ranch. He comes out with a refrigerated truck, and one second they're eating, the next minute they're harvested. It's, it's fantastic. There's no stress. The Prime Act was unsuccessfully introduced two years ago, but bipartisan sponsors in Congress say they plan to try again this year. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Get the Black Market Farm's recipe for how to best enhance the unique flavor of a grass-fed Wyoming steak. Visit our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. After our break, we'll hear about a Wild West reenactment in Wyoming that continues to use stereotypes of Native Americans. And we'll learn about two school programs that don't have the luxury of taking a summer vacation. Next on Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Summer in Wyoming means a variety of shows dedicated to reenacting the Wild West. There will be cowboys and Indians, except in some locations, the Native Americans will be played by white actors in red face, which is the situation in Lusk, Wyoming, where the two-day production of The Legend of Rawhide depicts Native Americans skinning a white settler alive. And as Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard reports, it's a town tradition. 15-year-old Cade Clark is standing shirtless at a water spigot outside the Niobrara County Fairgrounds in Lusk. He reaches into a bucket full of red-brown dirt, grabs a handful, and runs it under the water. Then he starts to paint himself. Putting on iron ore. It's like, yeah, so we look like Indians and stuff. Yeah, you get it what gets on easier. Clark is one of the dozens of people, from toddlers to the elderly, playing Sioux Indians in The Legend of Rawhide, the annual July pageant and Wild West reenactment. The Legend of Rawhide is a big deal in Lusk, a town of 1,500. This year, about 250 people were in the cast of pioneers and Native Americans, and that's not counting those working behind the scenes. Ron Nelson, who's been on the Legend of Rawhide board of directors for 27 years, says on a good night, between 9 and 1,100 people come to see the show. You know, it's just the greatest thing that, that we do as this community. One of the good things. We do a lot of good things in our community. But this is one of the things that we do that kind of brings everybody together. The Legend of Rawhide was written in 1946 
as a way to lift people's spirits after World War II. And the script has changed little since then. It opens with narrator and director Ross Dirks describing how pioneers began to clash with Sioux warriors. In the Indian, taught from birth the law of survival, fought back. He was not taught sympathy, pity, or turn the other cheek, kindness to others or self. These were no favoring qualities, but rather weaknesses to be tolerated. Then, a band of pioneers coming west from Missouri stops for the night by the buttes near Lusk. Among them is a hot-headed young man named Clyde, who, against the advice of other settlers, makes a promise. The only good engine's a dead engine. Never liked him, never will. Look at all them famous pioneers. Killed lots of engines. I'm going to kill the first red skin I see. And he does. He kills the chief's daughter, and the tribe demands justice. Either hand him over, or they'll attack. When asked what they'll do with him, the tribe says they will skin him alive. Eventually, the man hands himself over, and is skinned. Jeremy Johnston, the curator for the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, says Western shows and reenactments like The Legend of Rawhide are appealing for the sense of community they provide. Although, he adds, they can leave something to be desired because they often reduce history to good guys and bad guys. Yes, you put on a, a good theatrical presentation, but you really lose the complexities of the past. You know, the motivations, the, uh, the reasons why these people were conflicting with one another, it basically boils down to good versus evil, the, the guys in the white hats versus the black hats. Recently, Native American groups have taken issue with this type of performance. In Laramie, a group of Native American high school students walked out of a production of The Fantastics earlier this summer because of its portrayal of Native Americans as savage. Legend of Rawhide board member Ron Nelson says they have rarely had anyone take issue with the show's content. He claims a few years ago, some Ogallala Lakota elders came to see the show. They wanted to know exactly what was going on, and so they came and, and watched the show, and after the show, they were very impressed how, how we run the show and how we portrayed both sides. Trina Lonehill is the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Ogallala Lakota. She doubts any elders actually attended a performance, and she raised the issue recently with a number of current elders. They were actually a little appalled. <laughs> the people I talked to, they were, what? And the, some of them actually Googled it right away, you know. I know they were in shock, and especially they heard about the, you know, the skinning and all this stuff, and they were just like, wow. J.V. Bolden on the Legend of Rawhide Board of Directors says he does not think their portrayal of Native Americans is offensive. Especially in today's day and age, hell, you can dress up as a woman and nobody can portray you as anything different because, but uh, there's no reason that you should be depicted as anything. I mean, this is a play. This is not, we're not making a statement that the Indians are bad or the Cowboys are bad or anything of the sort. Ron Nelson agrees. And he points out that the pageant gives out college scholarships and it recently raised tens of thousands of dollars for flood relief in Lusk. We just want to have fun, and we want to do great, good things for our community. But Ogallala Lakota Preservation Officer Trina Lonehill is not impressed. 
Oh, well. <laughs> it's all in good fun. <laughs> it's like the NFL mascot issue, you know, or the, you know, the, the baseball issue. It's, well, we're honoring them. You know, you're not honoring us. You're, you know, it's, it's, it's offensive. Those involved with the Legend of Rawhide say they hope most people don't feel that way. At the Niobrara County Fairgrounds, the wagons roll off the field, and the narrator brings the show to a close. Leaving Clyde to a horrible death at the foot of the Rawhide Buttes. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. For thousands of low-income children in Wyoming, there is such a thing as a free lunch, at least during the school year. In order to provide healthy food to students who rely on free or reduced meals throughout the vacation season, schools and other organizations are attempting to offer free summer meals to kids. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Alana Elder reports, they aren't reaching everyone. The oranges are a hit at Feeding Laramie Valley, where Sandy Moody is serving lunch to a steady stream of eaters. By the end of the hour, it'll add up to more than 60 people from daycares, preschools, and the local neighborhood. Moody says they'll serve anyone, kids for free and adults for $1.50. Gail just believes that everyone should have availability of food, and it's a lower-income section of town, and she just thought we were in the right location to set up a program like this. Last year they did it three days a week and it was such a success that she went to five this year. Gail Woodsum is the founder of Feeding Laramie Valley, a nonprofit that grows and distributes local produce at no cost. They started serving these types of lunches in 2015 out of a concern that some kids were lacking reliable access to nutrition during the summer months. A lot of children get their primary meals, if not their only meals, at school. But that means when school is out of session, they're out of a food source. Woodsum also wanted to give kids something fun and engaging to do together. We know that sometimes kids get isolated during the summer. They lose contact with community that they have at school and learning opportunities. The USDA reimburses places like Feeding Laramie Valley two or three dollars per meal, depending on whether they're serving lunch or breakfast. For a meal to count, the kids have to take a certain amount from various food groups. Woodsum says the reimbursements help them cover most of their food costs, but they're not enough to fund an entire program. It does nothing to cover the cost of the site that we're holding it at or of any of the staff that's doing the work to cook the food and serve the food and clean up afterwards and plan the activities and all of that. Woodsum worked around that problem by hiring paid volunteers from AmeriCorps VISTA, a national service program that picks up most of their labor costs. Wyoming Department of Education Nutrition Programs consultant Amanda Anderson says finding staff to serve meals is a barrier to many schools and organizations, which is a concern because children in the state need more locations where they can find summer food. On the reservation, for example, we have communities that are really, really spread out. And so, you know, we, we really need more summer food service program sites so families aren't having to drive 10, 15 minutes or more to get to a site. And there are plenty of other places lacking food sites in Wyoming. 
The other problem is that there are fewer kids eating meals at existing locations. Data from the Food Research and Action Council showed the number of participants in the state's summer food programs decreased from 2015 to 2016, and only one in five low-income kids are participating. Similar trends exist nationally. Anderson says summer hunger can have lasting effects. It's sad to think that there's kids that are worried about getting food during the summer months instead of just being able to be a kid. And also, when kids go hungry during the summer months or don't receive proper nutrition, they start off uh, the school year already behind. Anderson says programs are more successful if they can make people feel comfortable showing up. So it's important that they don't ask people to prove their incomes. But she says that does make it harder to know whether they're reaching the people they intend to serve. To make the site more welcoming, you know, you don't have an enrollment list or a roster. It's just come in and eat, and then we're going to mark you off, you know, that you ate. And so it's hard to say if the people that really need it are receiving it. You know, we just kind of hope that they are. Wyoming Food for Thought is a Casper nonprofit, also working to improve people's access to nutrition. Director Jamie Purcell is trying to be creative in her approach to reaching kids who need meals, like bringing food to where the kids are. Now we've actually moved mostly down the street to the Marion Kreiner Pool, which is half a block away, and they have a picnic shelter, and so trying to capture more kids from the neighborhood who might be going to the pool in the afternoon. On a good day, Purcell says they serve two times as many meals as they did before they started setting up by the pool. But she has bigger plans. Eventually, Purcell wants to take summer meals all around Casper. And then rescuing food, repurposing it into meals that meet those components, and literally like rolling up like a food truck does to a corner and just serving out of it and counting the meals that we serve. Purcell's planning to submit a grant for that project by December. She and Feeding Laramie Valley's Woodsum have similar visions of growing more local food and transporting it to places where it is needed and easier to find. For now, they're among 96 places in Wyoming, serving weekday lunches to whoever can get there. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Alana Elder. Schools are a steady source of more than just lunch. Teachers and counselors are also a source of support for kids who are struggling with mental health issues. But just like hunger, which doesn't pause for summer, emotional turmoil doesn't take a break either. Suicide is the second leading cause of death nationally for people between the ages of 10 and 24. As Wyoming Public Radio's Tennessee Watson reports, that's why a unique partnership has formed in Campbell County to support kids year-round. In the library of Sunflower Elementary School on Gillette's southwest side, Dr. William Heineke is hard at work as a psychologist. I'm putting the hat on now. Actually, I'm putting on two hats. I've got half a shirt on over a polo shirt. Where I usually put my pen, I'm going to put a toothbrush. The Mardi Gras mask he's putting on, followed by his eyeglasses, might be deceiving, but this wild outfit is part of a serious effort to help troubled elementary school kids. They've been diagnosed with things like anxiety, depression, anger issues, and are at risk for suicide. And what is this going to help them do? Just be observing, um, work together, have some fun. Um, so it's kind of playful. And we know uh, children like to play, and that's their language. Heineke cuts the explanation short as a group of little kids, all under 12, file into the library with smiles beaming across their faces. Five weeks into a six-week summer program, these young kids stay calm, quietly whispering and working together. 
For each silly thing they notice about his outfit and write down, they score a point. For over 30 years, Dr. Heineke has been running this summer program. It's the basic behaviors of cooperation, following instructions, staying on task. These are troubled kids that cannot, that, that struggle with those issues. In this group therapy summer camp, around 80 kids work on their ability to weather different situations under the guise of fun, riding the school bus to take a tour of the firehouse and swimming at the pool. And after a day of excitement, they come back to Sunflower Elementary for yoga and story time, an opportunity to learn how to relax and calm themselves. So they're growing. You know, to me, behaviors come first, and then they can get the academics. Heineke says over the last 30 years, he's seen Campbell County School District Number 1 doing more and more to address the mental well-being of its students. His summer program is part of a unique partnership between his employer, Campbell County Health, and the school system. This integrated approach is an effort much bigger than the summer camp. Together, these two organizations are also responsible for Wyoming's only school-based health center, which is where we've come today. Right now, we just, we're just we in the parking lot, and we just pulled up to our kid clinic, which is an old elementary uh, building, the old Hillcrest Elementary here in Gillette. That's Kip Farnham, Director of Student Support Services for the school district. This repurposed elementary school provides primary care and mental health and substance abuse services to young people across Campbell County. And that's uh, not only school kids, but kids six weeks to 21 years of age. Since opening the doors five years ago... Every year we are increasing the amount of students we see by anywhere from 35 to 45 percent. And it's just, uh, just a super successful model. He says grants help get the project off the ground. The school provided the space and Campbell County Health provided the clinicians. And because they take insurance and Medicaid, the clinic now financially sustains itself. For the uninsured, there's a sliding scale fee system, and Farnham says kids with limited resources get services for free. And even when summer vacation hits, the clinic is still in full swing. You know, our school counselors are off, but our mental health providers at the clinic, they're on every working day, they're available to the kids. It's just an excellent opportunity for our kids to get that continued care throughout the summer. With four mental health providers working full-time, Farnham says the demand indicates they're doing something right. I know our graduation rate is going up. I believe our attendance rates are, co- are coming up. So I think these things really help. What really motivates these efforts, Farnham says, is an attempt to save lives. We've had some terrible suicide issues in our community. And across the country, the number of kids and adolescents admitted to children's hospitals for thoughts of suicide or self-harm more than doubled during the last decade, according to research released this year. But in Campbell County, Farnham says the number of completed suicides has started to decline in the last couple years. I think a lot of it has to do with some of the efforts we've made in our community. And this, I think this sort of facility really helps us and, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to see that rate drop even more. But Farnham says they still lose students every year to suicide, a potent reminder why providing year-round services is such important work. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson.
To wrap up today's show, we'll learn about a new health clinic in Laramie that hopes to fill the needs of people falling through the cracks. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. One of the major problems in Wyoming is the lack of affordable health care. It's an old issue, and while health insurance is certainly a piece, there are few affordable places people can go who are without insurance or who are underinsured with high deductibles. For many years, Laramie has had a clinic for very low-income people. It now has another health clinic for those who have fallen through the cracks. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck has more. Last fall, the University of Wyoming applied for a federal grant that led to the establishment of the ninth primary care clinic in the state. The goal is to provide subsidized health care for low-income people and offer another health care provider for those who do have insurance in Laramie. They call it the Albany Community Health Clinic. The university has operated family health clinics in Casper and Cheyenne for a number of years. And the goal is to provide health care while also offering a place for students in the College of Health Sciences to get practical experience. Rochelle Kyneth is the executive director. We see people anywhere from 200% of poverty or below are on a sliding fee scale. And then we accept insurance for uh, if you have it or uh, Medicare or Medicaid. Dr. Katie Hartman is the medical director for the clinic. She was previously at Student Health Services on campus and then jumped at the chance to take this position to help a population who may not have received health care for many years. A lot of patients that I've seen do have very complex medical problems, and I think it's because um, they've not had good access to the medical system. And I'll probably see them back for several visits in the, in the very beginning, depending on how complex their issues are, until we get a handle on all of them. How's my blood pressure today? Let's see. <laughs> I'm laughing. It's good. Yay! Your top number's a little high, but that's right that's around where I'm you're running been. around. Yep. Now the finger oh, Nursing manager Darcy Cowardin is helping one patient <laughs> get a handle on her ailment. Cowardin had worked in private practice and noticed the many people who couldn't get adequate health care. We were limited by their ability to pay or things like that, and it was just heartbreaking to watch people not get the care that they needed. She doubts that many in Laramie understand the extent of the problem. I think there's a huge social stratification that a lot of people don't know about, um, especially if you're on that upper side of that stratification. I think it's really easy to not purposefully overlook, but I think it's not something that you necessarily run into every day. And anybody involved in healthcare in this community knows that that exists. One patient thinks she'd be in big trouble if she didn't find a clinic. Deborah Harley does not have insurance and had not been feeling well. In the past, she would have gone to the hospital emergency room, but this time she tried the clinic and found that she had a serious health problem that is being addressed. She thinks the clinic will save her life. We found out a few things that 
I wasn't aware of, which is great because now we can fix it. The ER, they're just like, they just want to fix it and get you out. And that's all well and good, but it's going to come back. Jan Cartwright of the Wyoming Primary Care Association stresses that clinics like this one have made a huge difference in many communities across the state. I think that if the health center does the outreach that it needs to to make sure that people understand why they're there, I think that they really do um, have a positive impact on their community in terms of bringing people in to uh, receive care. Dr. Hartman stresses that while they get grants, they will need people with insurance to help raise enough money to stay afloat. John Calder is a patient who has insurance, who has found Dr. Hartman's care to be exceptional. He's been dealing with a medical issue for many months, and for the first time, he believes it is getting taken care of. She had more than enough time to answer, ask me follow-up questions, as well as... Um, explain what she thought the best treatments were. Oftentimes with doctor visits before, I feel like I'm rushed through in 7 to 11 minutes and I don't feel understood and I don't feel like they understand my illness. Kyneth says they plan to grow with hopes of adding a pharmacy and perhaps even dental services to the mix. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Thanks for joining us for Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear one of our stories again, you can find them at our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. There you can also explore old shows, suggest stories for future programs, and find links to our podcast that's also available on iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to visit us on Facebook, and all of our reporters can be found on Twitter. You can find me at Melody Edwards 3. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.